Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 54 of the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast from the Institute for Research on Poverty at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Dave Chancellor. This is our May 2017 episode, and we're featuring Joe Sauce, who's an IRP affiliate at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs, where he's the Cowles Chair for the Study of Public Service. He visited IRP this past November and gave a talk called Praying on the Poor, How We Made Criminal Justice Profitable and Remade American Citizenship, that was based on a book project that he's co-authoring with Josh Page. Afterwards, we spoke via Skype from his office at the Humphrey School, and Dr. Soss began by explaining his research against the backdrop of the events that unfolded in Ferguson, Missouri, noting how these events brought attention to the government's reliance on funds generated through the criminal justice system to operate. For many of us, um, that was really the place where we started paying attention to this story. Um, After the police killing of Michael Brown, uh, the Department of Justice went in and did an extensive report, an investigation and report of what had been happening in Ferguson. And one of the things that they concluded was, Uh, essentially that the city of Ferguson had been running what they called a predatory system of government um, in which essentially the city had set out uh, to extract revenues from the local community of uh, the sort of low income community of color there. And the way they were doing that was they were using fines and fees, various uses of the courts and the police and the jails um, to draw people into the criminal justice system Uh, and then to extract revenues from them through the payment of fines and interests on fines. Um, And this funding, this source of revenue, was actually making up one-fifth of the total budget revenue for the city at the time of the report. And, you know, it it had reached the uh, scale that, on average, households in Ferguson's had three arrest warrants out for each of them. And it was quite targeted. About 90% of the people who were receiving these fines and fees were African-American, and the payments were sort of rising over time. Uh, The city was doing this quite intentionally. They were actually uh, giving the police targets, uh, the Department of Justice discovered, um, and then they were monitoring whether the police and the courts were generating the amount of revenues. While this process resulted in revenues for the city of Ferguson, Sauce notes that it also resulted in significant consequences for those subject to it. And the result of this was that even people who sort of got pulled in uh, with fairly minor small tickets, small fines, not wearing a seat belt, parking in the wrong place, could find themselves being called into court then with more fees added, more fines, um, and they would find themselves in a situation where they owed more than they could afford to pay, and it would begin to get out of control um, with interest. And over time, they would find that they were in what, what was called a perpetual debt trap of perpetual payments to the city that in many cases could actually land them in jail. Um, even though today debtor's prison uh, is unconstitutional in the United States and barred by federal law, Uh, What happened to people was essentially they got called to court so many times that eventually they would miss one. Uh, They'd miss a mandatory summons and either because they didn't receive it or they they couldn't get someone to take care of their kids or they didn't have the money to pay so they didn't think they should go anyway. Um, And then once they did that, they had a warrant for their arrest, not technically for owing the money, but because they hadn't shown up for a court date. And And so in a sense, debtors' prisons. Um, had reemerged. Spurred by the Ferguson story, Sauce and his co-author decided to delve further into the practice of generating revenues from those involved in the criminal justice system to cover general operating expenses. 
as we began to dig into this, um, what we discovered, and we're not the first um, or only to dig into this, there are a number of wonderful uh, scholars out there at Good Work. Alexis Harris's um, Pound of Flesh book is a particularly excellent uh, investigation of fines and fees through courts. Um, but what, what we know is that in America today, about 10 million people owe a total of about $50 billion in criminal justice debt and make nearly $40 billion in payments on that debt each year. And if you look um, across the United States, um, you see that you know, in places like Chicago and New York and Philadelphia, the big cities, but maybe even more so in the in the moderate sized cities like Ferguson and in the smaller places um, where they've had much stronger budgetary pressures on them and fewer resources um, out there to meet those pressures. Um, a number of things have been sort of on the rise altogether at once. One is um, the use of fines and fees. You know, municipalities have uh, imposed more fines, they've raised their fines, and they've put in systems where as you get involved with the courts, whenever you get a ticket, um, fees uh, are added one on top of the other. Um, and that sort of system has really emerged since the early 1990s, uh, with, the, with a big onset in the 1990s, and uh, then again around the time of the Great Recession. Uh, around 2000, after 2007. So today, um, states uh, may even charge defendants extra fees if they're going to get a jury trial, if they're going to get a jury trial, or if they're going to have a public defender. These are rights still, but the person has to take on debt to exercise those um, rights. And when people go to prison, they find that they are charged various kinds of pay-to-stay fees. Um, they actually are paying, taking on debt for their stay um, in the prison. They're they're also being charged for their phone calls. They're being charged for visits over video technologies. Um, and then in addition to those kinds of fees, there's this whole system of civil asset forfeiture, which also rose over the same period of time. And this is a procedure, civil asset forfeiture, which emerged out of the war on drugs and, and grew in the 1990s. And it allows authorities to seize assets of any individual that they, if they believe that the assets um, may have been connected to a criminal activity. And all that's needed here really is suspicion. Unlike the individual, um, the thing, the cash, um, the goods, whatever it is that's placed under this suspicion does not really have any rights to due process or anything else. Um, so the burden of proof once these assets are seized is, seized is actually on the owner uh, to show that the assets don't have a criminal history. You know, in the United States, these sorts of civil asset forfeitures increased sharply in the mid-2000s all over the country. And then again, after 2008, um, they were actually more than a billion dollars in 2013 alone. And between 2001 and 2013, $2.1 billion in assets were actually seized from people who were not even charged with a crime. So across these different types of arenas, what we're seeing is over the last 25 years, in a way that's really widespread across the United States, a growing reliance on a kind on a use of the criminal justice system to extract revenues from below. Saw says that while these practices tend to target particular groups of people and communities, especially the poor and people of color, the consequences of this extend well beyond the individuals that are actually subject to the fines, fees, and forfeitures. One of the things that we have to realize is that it's not just the people who are sort of criminal defendants 
who wind up being the targets of this. Certainly many people who are, who are targeted for fines and fees and the rest are never convicted of anything. But even beyond those people, there's a question of who actually winds up bearing the costs of paying these things. And from all that we can tell from existing research, um, it's here that, that a gender analysis becomes really important for, for getting the story right. Men of color, of course, are disproportionately targeted by the criminal justice system for arrests and prosecutions um, and imprisonment. But it's disproportionately women, and especially women of color, who actually shoulder the financial burdens. Um, actually, about one in four women in the United States have a family member in prison, and that number rises to 44% among black women. And so if you look at who's actually covering the costs for incarcerated populations, for example, the family members who are covering those costs, 83% of them are estimated to be women. Um, when people go into the bail system, it's the women who co-sign those bail contracts and wind up on the hook for the debts. And it's women who pay oftentimes the fines and fees and prison charges um, while men are in prison. And what you find is um, that those people then uh, are pushed into debt themselves, although they haven't been directly targeted with a fine or fee. Um, among families that try to maintain contact with a prison inmate, an estimated one in three actually goes into debt. And those people are trying to pay off those debts in ways that keep them from paying for food and utilities and rent. Um, and in many cases, this can lead to even things like eviction. And so in a way, this is something that these burdens sort of transfer onto women, in many cases, women and women and children, families. And, and these dynamics tend to function as a really important um, obstacle to uh, dealing with poverty in any sort of effective way. Uh, they prevent asset building. Uh, from from occurring in any sort of way, they sort of in fact they do the opposite. They drain communities of the assets they hold, and they and they trap people in these sort of perpetual debt relationships that prevent them from accumulating assets that could help them exit poverty. Sauce says that in addition to the social and economic consequences, there are other broad consequences of a system of government that relies on the criminal justice system to generate revenues. There are also political consequences. There are civic consequences. You can think of this in kind of a two-sided way. Um, on one side, these sort of practices, which we call predatory criminal justice practices, operate in a way that's kind of repressive. Um, they, they take away things like they take away the individual's freedoms, they take away their rights, um, they obviously take away their resources, and in that sense, they contribute to the marginalization and exclusion and disempowerment of communities that are already um, quite marginal to American political life in terms of the power they hold and the influence. Um, for example, in, in some states, it's even the case that absent anything else, just simply owing these criminal justice debts um, can be a grounds for, for disenfranchisement um, from voting. In the state of Alabama, for example, um, local clerks are, are charged with holding authority, the discretion to decide um, on which kinds of, of criminal justice involvements constitute what they call moral turpitude. And in some places, they consider owing these debts to be a kind of moral turpitude that justifies taking away the franchise, not allowing people to vote. In thinking about these extractive criminal justice practices as described by Sauce, he says there's a bigger story here about the pressures placed on local budgets that occurred independent of the criminal justice system. 
I think it's here that Josh Page, my co-author, and I um, take a little different position than some of the other works, which we think are quite good um, in this area, which is that um, we really, rather than seeing this as something that is simply about um, what happened to the criminal justice system, we see what's happened here as a response to something much broader, the sort of broader changes in the political economy. If you go back and look at the timing of when this happened and where it happened and how it happened, um, what you find is that I think the beginning of the story for us is that a variety of decisions were made, um, which really, uh, in a sense, began to uh, make the, the fiscal situations, the bu budgetary situations of municipalities untenable. Um, on one side, you know, uh, there was this long period of policy devolution in which a variety of services and programs and various obligations of government were handed down from federal government to state governments, which then passed them down to, to local government. And local governments became really responsible for a much broader array um, of costs, uh, expensive obligations, oftentimes through even what people called in many cases complaining about it, unfunded mandates. that They had to come up with the money do this. At the same time, um, municipalities were prevented increasingly from raising their own revenues to meet these obligations. States passed various um, laws and rules that, that made it impossible for localities to raise their taxes and raise revenues without um, getting statewide approval, or they simply put uh, bans in place against raising local property taxes or um, all sorts of things like that. And so municipalities um, more and more found that they were um, in a position in which they had a kind of structural mismatch in an ongoing way between uh, the obligations they had and the funds they had available. Sauce says that because of this, municipalities began to look for other ways to meet their fiscal needs, and that the timing of this coincided with what Sauce calls a remaking of criminal justice and policing in America. If you look back from the war on crime through the war on drugs, things like broken windows policing and all of that, what we find is um, that from the 1970s on, we built this massive, sprawling apparatus of criminal justice in this country. And by the 1990s, which is really the point of onset um, for a lot of this contemporary criminal justice predation, um, by the 1990s, you had the growing fiscal pressures that I described intersecting with a set of changes in criminal justice that were well underway and, in fact, uh, accelerating. So you had this large, growing system of policing, adjudication, and incarceration. And the 1990s was a particular, particularly intense decade of moral panic over underclass pathologies where you had powerful sort of rhetoric surrounding the idea of social disorder and crime and personal irresponsibility, calls to get tough on bad behaviors, including criminal behaviors. Uh, and these political pressures to get tough on crime combined with the fact that in many cases localities had limited uh, control over sentencing and probation and Parole, that made it very difficult for municipalities to do in the area of criminal justice what they were doing in the area of social services. In social services, right, the fiscal pressures led to cutbacks. Um, they needed to save money. These were expensive programs. So there was an era of sort of austerity, cutting back programs. But the tough on crime politics made it very hard uh, to cut back policing, to cut back incarceration. 
But here's the thing. What happened was that the same pressures, right, that stood in the way of criminal justice rollbacks actually offered a basis for a different response to fiscal pressures, actually converting criminal justice systems into revenue sources. And so what we saw in one city after another um, was that in the name of getting tough on crime, um, officials created new violations and added new fines and raised fine levels. And in the name of protecting taxpayers uh, from having to cover the costs of criminals and in a sense being fleeced by criminals in that way, um, they piled up all sorts of fees to make the criminals pay the costs. Um, and in the name of public safety, they expanded the scope and size of, of financial bail obligations. And of course, as I've already mentioned, uh, to promote the war on drugs and pursue it, they they aggressively developed and pursued civil asset forfeiture procedures. So all of these actions really, um, what appears, what we call a predatory system of, of criminal justice um, activities, right? Um, in a way, to the actors who created it, seemed like good governmental decision-making. They, they appeared to many as a kind of win-win, or you might say a meeting of virtue and necessity. Uh, to those actors, they were getting tougher on criminals. They were pursuing public safety, and they were actually meeting the community's, community's significant fiscal needs all in one swoop, in some sense, to them at least. It, it appeared to make sense at the time. Professor Sauce says that within poverty studies, there hasn't been enough attention to these kinds of extractive forces, especially those coming from people and groups in power, when it comes to understanding poverty. At the center of the field has always been this question of why, particularly for those of us who study the United States as part of poverty studies, why in an affluent society are so many people poor? Um, and I think in terms of that core question, um, we've said a lot of important things about neighborhood dynamics and about the accumulation of human capital and um, individual differences in various ways. And we study why programs um, that aim to draw people out of poverty um, fall short of their goals in various ways, whether it's uh, through funding or implementation or design problems or whatever it might be. All this is really important. We should continue to do all that, of course. But if, you, if you've participated in this community for a while and if you keep up with these literatures, it's striking to me in light of the story that I've just told from our project how little we've talked about the fact that many people are poor in the United States precisely because there are more powerful groups out there who work creatively and actively and continually to enrich themselves in ways that deprive people of assets and leave them in poverty. And I think that the fact that we talk about the characteristics and decisions and behaviors of poor people in poor communities so much and say so little about how powerful groups um, work to draw resources out of those communities, whether it's payday lenders or the kinds of predatory criminal justice practices I'm talking about or subprime mortgages and auto loans, credit card contracts, all of these things. The fact that we focus mainly on poor people's behaviors and choices and um, community characteristics and only look to more powerful groups and elites when we're talking about the policies they designed to try to alleviate poverty 
and don't pay attention to those more powerful groups, activities and institutions, institutions of government and institutions like private prison corporations and all the rest. Um, I think that in some ways that uh, is to our shame and is a detriment to our field. And I think that going forward, part of what uh, the message we hope to send with this book is that is that we really need to take much more seriously um, the analysis of how poverty intersects with inequality and power and practices of governance. Many thanks to Joe Sauce for sharing this work with us. This podcast was supported as part of a grant from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Office of the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, but its contents should not be construed as representing the opinions or policy of that office or the Institute for Research on Poverty. Thanks for listening. To catch new episodes of the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. You can also find all of our past episodes on the Institute for Research on Poverty website. 